0: Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Michael Ray, a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, joined by my two usual co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato, who's up in Boston, a physical therapist, and Dr. Derek Miles, a physical therapist in Cincinnati, Ohio. How's it going, guys?
1: How's it going, Mike? Good afternoon. Doing well, Mike.
2: Calling in from the clinic today.
0: Nice. I see the the whiteboard behind you. I figured you were probably at clinic. You done yes. seeing patients for today?
2: I am. I had a little busy morning, but I kinda like that. I like the front loaded days.
0: Nice. It's weird seeing you guys now. We're on a uh, Zencaster and usually we're just all audio, but we now have video.
2: Yeah. Everyone gets to show off their favorite t shirt. We just got new ones.
1: So if you come, you, you get a free T-shirt. Shirt.
0: Uh, <laughs> I have nuance. Uh, Derek's just, got something red.
1: Solid T-shirt. That's yeah. about what I need. I haven't made my custom cooking with a T-shirt yet. There, that really should be a T-shirt. That should be
0: like a barbell medicine T-shirt.
1: You, you would sell a lot.
0: Lord, yeah, and we not. could do um, – what's uh what's the sketch artist for face uh, – a caricature? How do you say it?
1: Caricature? Oh, yeah. It's a hard word. Yeah.
0: No. Of your face, Derek. It would just be like
1: you – know, Put an apron on. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: I actually was looking this week at uh, getting in a new apron, and I wouldn't be above embroidering it with uh, the good cooking with the teachings. I need to like get a, a logo made or something. You need to trademark it. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. I get people sending me, me to like there, like smoked meats, like they send me pictures of it, and I'm just like,
0: cool. Like, I have nothing to do with this. Like,
2: yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not me.
0: <laughs> right. Yep. Well, I think it's assumed like one of us speaks for all others, like we're a single unit, but three separate entities somehow.
1: Yeah. The hive mind. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's
1: always fun. I'm not entirely opposed to that, but you know, it all depends on which layer of question you're asking when... I get sent some random philosophical pain question like yeah, or a shoulder question, not my territory. Go go talk to Mike squared.
0: Right. <laughs> right. I like yeah, how Amato right. and I are just, we're, we're like the, a a separate singularity within the yeah. overall hive. <laughs> Mike squared. Yeah.
2: I'm, I'm not, uh, well, not going to be... make a BPS joke. I'm not, not going
0: to do it. <laughs> what would you say?
2: Oh, I'm not going to make a
0: BPS joke. You're not going to do what? Like I feel like psychosocial is always like the easy
2: like diet of that triad, but I'm not going
0: to go there. Oh boy. So today is supposed to be uh, our follow up to our first discussion related to what was the first one? Like basically the things that changed for us from schooling into clinical practice and then how we evolved over the years, right? Correct. So this is uh, part two. It's kind of in reverse, I guess, some people will think of this, because we're going to go over schooling today, kind of pros, cons, why we picked what schools we did, you know, what do we think about the current atmosphere and environment for schooling for pain and rehab, and then Derek has curated some questions from Instagram, I believe, so we'll probably go through those today as well. Let me pull up the outline here.
1: All right, so really, go ahead. I was just going to start. Well, really what we were wanting to start with was just kind of giving the background on the process for how we ended up where we are as far as our education and kind of the steps along the way. So, you know, we can run through that real fast and then start getting into kind of the nuance of why we ended up where we were. Yeah, I think everyone looking into rehab comes from a, a different background, although the large bolus probably comes from some type of like ex fizz. Um, or health science background and and wants to get into rehab from there. I would do my best today to use the universal rehab instead of dichotomizing between the branches. We'll see how well I do with that. However, I I think everyone here comes in with a little bit of a, a different side of it. My background is in biochemistry, and I worked as a geneticist for a year prior to going to physical therapy school. Originally thought it thought I wanted to do a PhD, but after having some discussions regarding that, was uh, deterred into the clinical side of things, which which I think has been a great decision. Part of the reason I didn't stay with my genetics job is because I wanted some human interaction, but <laughs> uh, and then went to physical therapy school at the University of Florida, and it was complete serendipity because that's where I was working in research. Um, But that is also where, at the time, a lot of the people that have really changed the profession were residing. Um, Steve George, Mark Bishop, Trevor Lentz, all the individuals, Joel Bielowski, who have done a lot of the research that have really changed the way we think about clinical practice guidelines, prognosis, manual therapy. So it really was right place, right time, and I hung around and did a residency because I came out of physical therapy school knowing that I still didn't know anything and was fortunate enough to be surrounded by a group of individuals there who constantly challenged the way I thought. And after that, for some reason, they decided to keep me around for another eight, nine years. So
0: what were they thinking? And then you were uh, in Stanford and then now Cincinnati,
1: which was like your shift um, to
0: pediatrics, right?
1: Yes. So I followed my wife or now wife out to California when she matched for residency. And even there, I think there's some layers to the education experience because if you really want to talk about like locus of control, start dating someone in medical school and go through the match process and realize that they don't have a lot of say in it and you have even less. And it really is a little bit of an interesting discussion on like where you end up, how much control you have over situations, and it's even influenced, you know, my current state of clinical practice or lack thereof a, as a result of following her now to Cincinnati.
0: All worth it, though, right?
1: Oh yes, of course. Although I don't think Kim ever listens to this, so I could probably be candid.
0: I was. Gonna say. <laughs> She's probably like Erica. I don't think Erica's listened to a single podcast, and I can't blame her. She's like, you ran enough at home. Like, why would I want to listen to more of you ranting? Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, that's I'm
2: always right. surprised. I'm always surprised when my coworkers like listen to it. Like Zach Big. Like, I listen to it. I'm like, why? Like, you hear me all that. Man,
0: <laughs> it's interesting. I like, it. I, well, you guys know all about this, but I interviewed for the visiting uh, assistant professor position at Bridgewater, and I got on the first interview phone call with the head of the department, and she was like, yeah, I listened to some of your podcasts. And I was like, oh, God, like, this could go a couple <laughs> of different ways. <laughs> Luckily, it was fine, but it was, I just, yeah. Yeah, wasn't expecting that at all. Uh, I suppose I can go next. I probably have the most random of backgrounds amongst us three, I think, because uh, I was from a non-science background altogether in undergrad. My undergrad's in criminal justice. I got out very briefly and worked as a judicial service officer. While I was working there, I was also personal training because I was pretty big into bodybuilding and like um, kind of like gym Bro type stuff really early on in the early 2000s. And so I started personal training while still working as a judicial service officer, got really into it, uh, decided I wanted to learn more, applied for a master's in exercise science at University of South Carolina, um, didn't have like any hardly, hardly any prereqs to get in going from a liberal arts major to a science major. So I spent about a year taking like my basic biology chemistry classes, undergrad ex-phys classes. Got in for my master's um, that took two and a half years with a concentration in motor control and rehab, worked in a neuroscience lab. Uh, specifically, my thesis was on developmental coordination disorder. So kids who aren't developing motor skills at the level we think they would, uh, really simplistic tasks at particular ages should be occurring. And so like they would have difficulties with if I threw them a tennis ball, they couldn't have the, the perceptual awareness to catch it necessarily. It may just like hit them in the chest. a lot of other things too like uh handwriting wasn't developing at the pace that we would think so we did because it's a neuroscience lab we did mri fmri which at the time sounded amazing i'm like awesome i can watch your brains light up and like you know make a bunch of inferences off of that super cool experience uh very thankful for it i had a great um uh, advisor and mentor uh, roger newman norland who's still at usc as far as i know and a neuroscientist and so I uh, finished that up, and I was like, well, I might go do a PhD, but then that just didn't follow through with that. I ended up going to do exercise physiology work and cardiology for a while. I briefly helped out on a study at USC, and then I landed in chiropractic school. Um, chiropractic school, I had been like seeing chiropractors throughout my whole life, mostly because like my family did that, and so I was brought along with them to it. Um, and I had developed a friendship with one locally in South Carolina and I was talking to him about like trying to make a life decision. Cause at this point I'm like, you know, 27. Um, so I'm a little bit older and still like, what am I going to do with my life? Um, he was like, dude, you should just go to chiropractic school. Like you'll have some major issues with some of the stuff they teach, but you'll come out with a piece of paper that gives you direct access. You can still like do health and wellness coaching and still do uh, therapeutic exercise with them and get reimbursed for it like, this sounds awesome. And so the closest one was Sherman. Then I went there, uh, finished that up in 2015. And then I went into my own practice immediately because I knew what practice looked like for most associate chiropractors. So I wasn't willing to go through that. Uh, that's basically everything in a nutshell. I'll let Amado talk.
2: Um, I didn't know you went along to like chiropractor offices when you were young. That's cool. Kind of oh, yeah. makes sense. Um, I think mine's like the most boring. Um, I think like from high school, I just kind of knew I wanted to go into like healthcare, but didn't want to do the med school thing. And we had been exposed to different like externships in high school, so we got to like rotate through some different like hospital settings and things like that. And one of my buddies convinced me, like, hey, there's a cool program at Boston University where they do like a combined athletic training and PT program. And, like, 17-year-old Mike was like, that sounds cool. I like sports. And just did it. And uh, that program no longer exists. I think they were getting more rare throughout the country. Um, But the combined program of being, like, essentially an accelerated six years of, like, doing your undergrad and graduate degree. So I started school in 07 came out in 2013 with my bachelor's in athletic training and my doctorate of physical therapy. Never really worked as an athletic trainer, got certified, but never got licensed or practiced. Um, But I thought it gave me a good kind of like leg up in terms of like a human interaction way. I I think I had to like unlearn a lot of stuff I learned in athletic training school when I got into PT school. And those two professions don't necessarily uh, get along too well. So it was like, you know, I was always like with the enemy, I felt like. But uh, it's funny thinking about it cause I, now that's 2021, I've essentially been like interacting at some level with somebody who's like hurt since like 2008. So I feel like that a lot of that helps from that like soft skill standpoint, but graduated in 2013, uh, with my DPT and then immediately went to like a hospital outpatient job and have been like kind of bouncing around the Boston area for the last seven or eight years and kind of where I ended up now. So... I feel like it's been like a yo-yo like
0: of like PT, boston?
2: yeah for three years now yeah Perfect. so I, I started at Four yeah i started boston too. physical therapy when i was at 2018 i was at a chain for like a year before that i did a couple of years at a gym doing like cash-based stuff and coaching when i was transitioning out of the hospital job um so yeah it's kind of like all kind of like interconnected at that point but Working at the current job for three years, and this clinic's been open now for three years, which is cool to see because we've kind of grown it from scratch and kind of molded, I'm assuming, kind of like what you had envisioned, Mike, when you opened up your own practice, kind of making it more activity and education focused and making it look like a gym setting, but still having the ability to kind of like make make a clinical uh, when when you need to. So we have like a private room, tables, ways to scale up and down. So it's been cool to see that grow in the community because now we're known for that, and people come to see us and kind of expect a certain style and quality of care. So,
0: yeah, I don't think I realized you guys had opened in 2018. For some reason, I thought the practice had been around longer than that.
2: It has the. This is like the, this was the second clinic. So the original clinic, yeah, the original clinic's been open longer. Uh, I guess they're going on like six or seven years of the other clinic. And then we're opening a third clinic in like a month.
0: I thought I saw that online. Yeah, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, so it's been fun.
0: Well, I think that's a pretty good background for all of us.
1: Yeah, so let's get into the questions a little bit because I, I do think this is some of the main focus here. We really want to delve into, and it, it's certainly worth discussion for us, impending students and, and even those going through the process right now. Um, the first thing we really wanted to talk about was some of the differences in schools across the rehab professions, and you know we can speak to the broad difference, differences between physical therapy and chiropractic school, and. I mean, Mike is obviously going to lend a lens to the educational differences there, but I think even within that context, there's a kind of side discussion about school-to-school differences, even between the rehab side of things. A lot of times online in some of the groups, you'll see a, a post about uh, something that someone thinks is unique in uh, like uh, some type of radiographical diagnosis, and people will be like, I can't believe you didn't cover that in school. And I think it certainly is a testament to the heterogeneity of schools in general. I think last count, there's over 200 physical therapy schools now. And when you start looking at that, you're going to have a high degree of differences in what is taught. And I don't think we will ever reach any type of uniformity out of it. And part of this really gets into who wants to be in those teaching roles as well. Uh, A lot of people that I think are are phenomenal teachers also have a a penchant more towards the clinical side of practice and may never even look to get into those instructor roles. But in the same process, uh, we have to realize that uh, physical therapy school is certainly a business. And with the emergence of so many over the last decade, you have to question the, Overall quality that comes out when you start getting that volume in place, and I think if you—I well, don't think I, I know—if you took some of the bigger physical therapy schools in the country in different regions, you're going to see a practice pattern very analogous to what's being taught there. If you are in an area where the school is espousing movement specialist or movement systems experts, you're probably going to see a higher density of that. If you're somewhere that's teaching a very biomechanical model, that's probably the view you're going to come out with. If a school is ingrained in the biopsychosocial model, you're probably going to get some more of that. Now, there's going to be gradations in every period, but a lot of times the advice that you'll see is go to the most economically feasible school. And I I do think there's some substance to that, but, you know, whenever we're talking about any project in life, going to the lowest bidder isn't always in your best interest. And you have to factor in things of what's my education going to be like? What are the connections that are going to come out of that? And what are the opportunities that going to the school affords me?
2: Yeah, I feel like it always comes down to, like, the people that make up the program and like the certain professors that you you might be able to link up with and who are really going to be like good mentors for you, depending on like what you're most interested in. Um, yeah, And I get to see a lot of variety of students that come into our clinic. So it's always interesting to see like what they get out of their individual programs. Um, and it depends on that, like, you know, dyad, you know, how much the student's willing to put in and what, what's offered to them from the program
1: or even the connections the students make. And and I think that can't be understated is, you know, school is a set group of professors teaching a set group of classes, but really you can delve deeper into those dyads and and not only form the relationships with your professors, but form those relationships with people outside of the school. Uh, I think that is really like the key to a lot of this, because if not, you do, tend to come out with this kind of myopic view of things. And it, it really is. It, I would say it, if you're looking at a clinic and everyone has went to the same school or, you know, a very small set, and there's not much difference in there that can be problematic because really in order to change, there has to be some type of outside voice present. And that change in those discussions are rarely comfortable, but It's necessity for moving the professions forward.
2: Mm -hmm. And over here in in our clinic, so I direct all the clinical education. So I get to kind of screen all the students that come in. And I would say we're spoiled in that way where a lot of our students like seek us out independently of their school. And then their school reaches out to me and they're like, oh, yeah, we never – I mean, like, we wonder why this person wants to come all the way to Boston, but, you know, now that we're talking to you, it kind of makes sense. So it's it's cool to see, like, students causing the change because then, like, administration takes notice, and then now I'm forming relationships with the, like, kind of, like, you know, <clears throat> the upper echelon, and uh, I don't know if that's, like, just the way always things change, but kind of this, like, bottoms-up movement has been cool to see. Um, and so if people, if people are listening to this podcast – for advice on like schooling and they're probably like have their foot in the door as being part of that, like bottoms up change, which is cool to see. Yeah.
0: I probably have a different perspective from you guys just because like that wasn't really the necessary reasons I went to get a doctorate was like, Oh, this person's at this school or I want to learn from them. Uh, It was more of like the end goal of acquiring the, you know, reward so to speak of jumping through hoops to be able to open a practice with that said, like, I benefited greatly, uh, obviously, with both of you on this call from joining networks that were outside of my social network at the time. So like joining clinical athlete, meeting people through that network, uh, meeting people through Level Up, and then Barbell Medicine, uh, a lot of my growth occurred from interacting with others that, you know, weren't even the same titles that weren't even not, you know, not even in the same states or country. Um, and so I think the internet has a huge advantage today that I didn't grow up with that I now have access to, especially in my doctorate. And then afterwards was I meet people all the time, uh, even just on Twitter. Like I'm now getting ready to conduct studies with people that I met purely online, you know, and that that's a huge uh, affordance that I didn't necessarily grow up with. So I think you should make sure to like, um, because there's so many decisions and like, I'm going to go to this school from debt to location to family ties to, Uh, innumerable factors of like what's going to influence someone going to school. It's not so simple of like, oh, you know, I live in California, but I really want to go to the school in Florida. Most people might not have the affordance to be like, let me pack my whole life up and go to Florida, right? So you may have to make a decision to go somewhere that uh, gets you to the end game and that's okay too.
1: And that's part of the beauty now is uh, I would say that's a little bit more feasible because it's so easy to access people outside of your school for educational purposes.
2: Yeah, that can't be overstated. I mean, looking at some of these questions, I don't know if I can answer a lot of them because when I went to school, I just had access to my school. You know, I didn't get a smartphone until I graduated from PT school, so I didn't really broadened my reach. I wasn't aware of like, you know, stuff not being, you know, up to date. I just kind of went to school and learned after the fact. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's something like I didn't go into because this is a great talking point. I didn't I never once like and I so played a lot of sports, had various like injuries, even had like shoulder surgery at one point, saw tons of clinicians from orthos to PTs to DCs. A massage therapist and i never once stopped to be like i wonder what model and lens they're using to come to clinical practice with right so i didn't go into my doctorate like hmm i wonder what biopsychosocial is or inactivism or phenomenal. like i don't know many students that that's the type of information entering their minds i mean i can say like getting ready to start teaching undergrads in the health science field, my plan is to teach that stuff to them. But I'm pretty comfortable in saying a lot of them, that'll be a minority subset of students that go on to a doctorate program.
1: Well, I think there from my educational experience, um, part of it during residency is I was also uh, doing inpatient trauma and have a lot more exposure to physicians there. And then I also worked at a bar all through grad school. And I would say that was as important to my educational experience as anything else. um, Partially because the bar I worked at was where a lot of the grad students drank. And I would see the medical school coming out or the dental school coming out. And I think sometimes we put these other professions up on a pedestal. And then when you, see them out and how they are completely humans as well. And sometimes uh, a a subset that may need a little more guidance Then I think it, it serves to humanize and and make you question things a little bit more. And one of the questions I, I love to ask students is, you know, how many of your classmates would you let treat your mom? And it's pretty rare to hear a high number out of that. And if you want to have some fun, ask that to physicians as well. That n- number doesn't change a whole lot. So I think a lot of times we like to say this is a PT problem or this is a Cairo problem or this is a rehab problem when in fact a lot of this is a people problem. Like it, it's just the way people think, the, the way that we acquire knowledge. And there, there was one question regarding, you know, how are so many highly educated people not good critical thinkers and reflectors? And I think the answer to that is often we kind of see our educational process as kind of drinking from the water hose and like, it's coming so fast that there really isn't that time for reflection, especially when you're in a didactic school that covers a very broad range of topics. I mean, if you're, you know, you have people doing seven year residencies in neurology and they get three lectures on it in medical school or, you know. MSK outpatient gets maybe five lectures and then you do a a three-year, four-year residency in PM&R with a two-year fellowship afterwards. So just the – I don't even know if I would call it promiscuous expertise, the like ignorance of unknown unknowns. It's it's almost like the other side of the coin to where you don't have that time to really sit there and reflect and be like – is this really the way it is? And I think the one common thread between the three of us is like how many dead ends we've ran into when we've started looking into a topic that we went in with a high degree of certainty and just got to the end of the road and been like, what the hell? There is nothing here. They did these contact forces on goat patellas. Like it's and that happened. (laughs) Like So, and I, I think you have to have that inflection point, of like some time to sit around and really contemplate what's being said.
0: There's a lot there. Um, I, I want to go back to like the pedagogical style of teaching that is academia. Uh, we really should get uh, my friend Sam on here sometime. Who's a, a professor at Bridgewater as well. Um, Cause he and I have had a lot of conversations about this, but it's almost like a, the way I would describe it it's a depository system from the sense of like, I give you money, you give me knowledge. And so we don't really think about, like, okay, well, they're just giving me facts. But, like, are these really facts? Like, how did they come to know this information and what evidence are they using to substantiate it? And you're not really even taught that, unfortunately. If you are, like, I totally missed it out of my, like, 15 years of college-level education or however many years I have at this point. Uh, So I think, like, that's ultimately it. Like, yes, we end up with a lot of highly educated people. When we say educated, we mean they've gotten pieces of paper that said they jumped through various hoops to get this degree. But that doesn't mean that we learned how to think along that way. It just means we learned how to memorize information and provide it back to them, which is like to the medical school idea of most of your training is going to be done after med school. That's why, because you're learning how to take that information and critically think and apply it. And I think that seems to be the theme with physical therapy as well now. And I hope for, for chiropractic sake, they also transition towards some type of residency program.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm always wondering when that is going to become like a necessity instead of like
1: an option. Yeah. But even then though, you know, it, it's interesting and I feel like I can speak semi intimately to this with the journey I've been on across country. There's such a high degree, even of heterogeneity in residency qualities. Yeah. And then what you even see beyond that is, you know, it's, it's still based on the human connection side of it to where, you know, a physician at one place will take a job at in another institution. All of a sudden, that residency track starts building bridges more. And, you know, I've, I've even seen the phenomenon of the expectation that if you're in the Ivy League, you're expected to stay in the Ivy League side of things. And I, I think that carries over to where if we're talking about like even physical therapy residencies, like there's likely going to be a tiered system, whether we want it or not in overall quality of education. And I think there's been a phenomenal transition in PT in the last 15 years towards this, like we need to learn to critical think, we need to support things with evidence versus more the the dogmatic I'm, going to create a method with my name, register trademark, but we're still fighting that from an educational standpoint of now it's, the name has disappeared from a lot of the dogma, but a lot of the foundation is still there. And I I think it's still going to take a while to peel back that. But once again, I, I don't think this is a PT thing or a Cairo thing. I think it's, it's a people thing. Yeah. And I don't know that we have a, like, phenomenal set group of instructions for a way to address this.
0: Yeah. The the kind of elephant in the room, right, is, like, this is all a business from education to, you know, clinical practice. Ultimately, we operate in a system that prioritizes profit, right or wrong. We don't have to debate that. That is what it is. So many things like, oh, you trademark something, you become very popular, people get better for a lot of different reasons, probably not directly related to your intervention of choice in this context. And people gain success, which then leads to like, oh, we should teach this in school and schools have to, you know, if the pandemic showed anything in this context, like schools are equally a business like that is academia. That's just how it functions. And if we don't have a demand for a program, that program's probably not going to survive. Right or wrong, we could certainly have that discussion. So it's like, how do, we, how do we prioritize uncertainty, non-tangible answers, difficulties in clinical practice, the realization that you don't have as much control as you think you do? You're not influencing humans in the way that you think you are. Those things are very hard to accept, hard to teach, but also hard to demonstrate profitability within that system.
1: I think some of that is just inspiring curiosity in students and because from the top down, bottom up conversation, I I really do believe this is a a bottoms up thing. And the more you can have people start questioning themselves or, or questioning the system, the more likely they are to reach out and interact with people. And I do think it is ultimately that network of interactions that really does change you and make you into a like better critical thinking clinician. And um, I've had numerous conversations with students about just showing up. And really how I got to working at the butcher shop was I walked in and asked them if they offer butchering classes. And the butcher was like, well, if you show up, I'll teach you how. And it's like, Are you serious? And showed up next Tuesday yes. and she was surprised to see me. And I can't tell you how many times I have students say something to the effect of like, Well, I wanna learn this or I I wanna learn this, and then they never really follow through on it for whatever reason. But we've we've had just this showing a lot. up. Yeah. 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 Just showing up like cannot be overstated. And even, you know, we've talked about my approach to, like, conferences and stuff before where I'm like, yeah, cool, you went to the talk, but, like, stay up too late. Like, go meet that professor or that speaker. Like, Mm -hmm. you're going to have way more from that personal interaction than sitting there watching their PowerPoint.
0: It it comes back to, like, uh, at least what I think of as our prior conversations around I can't make you care more than you do care. And so, like, someone will ask a question, like, something super uh, difficult to answer, like, what is pain? And I'm like, how much do you actually care about this topic? Because we can dive way down this rabbit hole and you can decide, like, I don't even care at this point of what I originally asked. And so it's like, how do we foster your interest to care more? I think that's, you know, really hard to do.
1: Well, no. but it, it's kind of funny when we talk about like our approach to a lot of things, like just show up, just train, just yeah, calm just down, for, just and, and it, yeah, it really is that like behavioral reinforcement out of it, and there has to be that natural curiosity inspired yeah. in it. I, you know, I think the people listening to this podcast, there's probably a, a standard deviation more of that than the norm, just because they took the time to find this, yeah. but. Really, you know, a lot of the things that it, it goes back to that, like what is hard conversation sometimes, yeah. and it's all contingent upon like what you're dealing with at the time. And for us, like reading research isn't hard now, right. but I still remember in undergrad, like presenting a research article and not realizing that one of the words was an acronym and getting to shred it for it. Like in my genetics job once a month on Fridays, we had to like, we called it going in front of the firing squad and you would present where you currently were in your research and and get it tore apart. And it wasn't malicious. It was meant to make you better.
0: That's academia. But really, yeah.
1: uh, I mean, I think you're generous in saying that, Um, (laughs) but really the, The principle of it was more your argument can always be better. Your methods could always be better. And I I remember in biochem, one of our tests, we like the class average was like a 35. And, you know, these are all future medical students. So everyone's losing their minds over it. And the professor got up in front of the class and was like, this is intentional because I want you to understand that no matter how hard you work at this, you're never going to know everything. And, like, I still remember sitting in the class and being like, wow, like, you just crushed some people in here. But that was the most, like, salient point to learning that I've ever heard.
0: Well, that goes back to, like, the academic setup, right? Like, we prioritize, you know, passing this test, getting this particular grade onto the next class. Pass this test, get this grade, pass this board. Like, that is what we consider accomplishments, not necessarily, like, the process of learning and how to critically think.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I think that's part of why I've gravitated towards like cooking being cathartic as well is because it is so process oriented and it's like, I've probably chopped 10,000 onions at this point in my life and still like, I can do this better. And Mm -hmm. when you look at like the minutiae out of it and just slowly honing the craft like, that really is what a lot of education comes down to is that like honing of a skill set. Yeah. And I even think from the educational standpoint, like, I've always worked in a setting, and this is population specific. I am not saying this is right or wrong, to where I was comfortable double booking on occasion. And I would do it completely re- related to like how difficult the patient was, how much oversight they needed. But some of this, too, like, it's extra reps. And for people that come out of school and they're like, well, I only want to see six patients a day, one-on-one, I want an hour a piece. That's awesome. But if that's the case and I'm seeing 12 patients a day, I'm doubling you on reps. And so I'm going to see more outliers. I'm going to see more things that are a little bit strange and, you know, it's ultimately down to the clinician on deciding what they want to do it, But, you know, I think I can manage it. I think I've managed it very well over the course of my career. And I certainly don't think I need to be hawking over patients, but I'm comfortable saying that practice has allowed me to really develop the critical thinking skill set because I've seen so many more.
2: Yeah. I have that conversation with students all the time in terms of like, you're here for a 12 week clinical, you're going to see, you know, three low back pain cases. But then when you're practicing for like a year, you're going to like exponentially increase that amount of reps. So like you can build those like deliberate practice kind of habits in the beginning, then that'll translate to like meaningful reps later on. the thing I'm always afraid of. is just kind of like people checking out and just kind of skating through because I'm sure we've all worked with individuals who probably have been doing the same thing they were doing like five years ago. And so it's like they have the reps, but why didn't they change or how are they surrounded by individuals that challenge them? And so, yeah, I don't think I don't think you get it until you actually do it so many times. But you need to have the right like habits and thought processes set in place so that you actually grow from the increased exposures instead of like avoiding the challenge. I know Derek talks about this all the time is like, what are you missing maybe in that patient interaction or that patient case that could be a good challenge for you to progress but you avoided it by like doing something low value We talked about the problem.
0: Yeah. Well, it's harder to like look a human in the eyes and have a conversation with them. I mean, that's a skill in and of itself. Uh, we talk about that a lot, like learning to have tough conversations. You know, the only way you really learn to do that is to engage tough conversations and have a willingness and openness to do that. And then, you know, hopefully trying to make your patient semi-comfortable to have that conversation with you. Um, and, and like if I were to narrow frame the problems of our fields, it is often our unwillingness to have these conversations with individuals and try to, to help them. And I realize they bring stuff to the table as well, as far as behavioral changes and maybe an unwillingness to make important life changes, but it's much easier to just lie you on the table and do a joint manipulation or just to put a needle in you or to tape you versus let me sit you up, look you in the eyes and we have an honest conversation about, you know, things that we can do meaningfully long-term to impact this situation. Uh, and you see it across, it's, it's just not in pain and rehab, but you also see it in like personal training, health and fitness world. You know, we talk about the obesity epidemic and things that are ongoing with that. And how do we help impact the situation? That conversation has been going on since I got my master's, um, which is quite a, some time ago at this point. And it's like, well, how do we do this? Well, you have to work with human beings and find where they're at in their path and figure out how you help weight risk versus benefits and, you know, facilitate change. But it's much easier just to be like, yeah, I don't eat carbs, you know? That's, Sorry, that's so, a tangent. So let's,
1: no worries. Let's start running through some of the questions because I, I think there will be some similar and different answers. So how did you interact with professors you disagreed with? Mike, you want to start us off on this?
0: Sure. Um Masters, I would say I was much more willing to like have conversations with people. Uh, doctorate, I didn't care in the slightest. Like it was punch a clock for me and my doctorate. I was older at that point. I already had a game plan of what's happening afterwards. So it was like, yep, go take this class. It's from this time to this time. And then I lived in uh, North Carolina. So at the end of the day, I like got in my car and drove away for an hour and some odd minutes. So I had complete separation for the most part. Uh, so I, it just wasn't worth it to me at that point, and I just didn't care enough. Right or wrong, that was like my approach to my doctorate program.
1: How about you, Amato?
2: Yeah, I think I have another uh, cop out answer because, like, honestly, I think, and it's funny looking back on it, you like missed a lesson you learned, but going from athletic training school physical therapy school was like one of the first moments where i was like oh i learned something like wrong in undergrad and now grad school is gonna fix that but what i should have probably took away from that is like that'll continually happen and maybe i should explore what i'm learning in grad school but kind of like that fire hose moment where i just kind of took it in as much as i could especially when you're like learning Three different systems of rehab. You know, I think people always forget. Like we didn't at least in PT school, like we didn't just learn musculoskeletal. Like there was cardiopulmonary and neuro too. So you are just kind of like trying to stay afloat. But I would say that I tried a little extra harder to try to like understand where professors were coming from, Um, especially my class that was centered around like low back pain and uh, neck pain. Like she was very my professor was very evidence based, where we just learned from articles. Like, we had no textbook. And so I was just interested more in her approach. And so I think I learned more about her approach than really questioning what she was teaching at the time. But I don't have a good answer for that.
1: I ran my forehead into a wall on numerous occasions, um, <laughs> which probably comes as a no surprise to anyone listening to this who knows me. Um, I, I sat back a lot, but... I remember one instance in particular where the uh, we had an ethics assignment, and the question was: an OT is billing for PT services. How would you handle it? And I answered, I would move to Canada. And the professor's like, Well, that's not an adequate answer. I was like, Well, I mean, why isn't it? They're like, Well, you can't do that. And I'm like, Pretty sure I can go across the border. Like, you're teaching ethics as a black and white thing. Certainly is not. So I got called to the principal's office over that one. And well, you just,
0: why is that? I'm totally curious now. Like why is that even a teaching moment of like somebody's cutting into my piece of the pie? You know, like that's exactly well, what that conversation is to me.
1: I mean, it's, it's technically illegal, but <laughs> that's uh, neither here nor there. But really the point I was trying to make is when they teach these ethical conundrums, it, it's really easy to be like, well, you know, I would first have a conversation with the OT and then I would report it to my supervisor. Cool. You you check the boxes that they want you to check in answering that question. That is not how life works. Like, it, it, I would love to think that all of us are, are fully good. But, you know, it, let's talk about like it, this is a dirty scenario. And we've all like to take a broad scale, had friends do things that I'm sure like looking back, we're like, that was really questionable. I should have stepped in earlier and none of us stepped in. And I think teaching even ethics from that standpoint, it devalues how dirty those conversations are. Um, But in the same regard, we had uh, a 7 a.m. lecture, and I'll never forget this because I'd worked at the bar the night before, where they came in and were teaching us the quote unquote evidence behind kinesio tape. And we had a lady stand up in front of class and say pink kinesio tape has a warming effect. Blue kinesio tape has a cooling effect. Um, I handled that by going to sleep on the spot.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was semi awake in the majority of, of my classes. I paid attention to important stuff like, Oh, biochemistry. We're probably going to get tested on this on part one boards. I probably should pay attention to this, but other stuff. I was like chiropractic philosophy. Awesome. Exciting. Yep. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I try to give students, like, advice because uh, I tend to attract specific students that have, have gotten into trouble as well, maybe as Derek. Um, and I, I think their wish is that they would have approached things differently uh, with their professors. And I think usually my advice is, like, you know, you're only in school once, so learn as much as you can. Obviously, there's going to be stuff that you disagree with, probably, what the professor is saying or teaching. But, like, you can approach it tactfully if you really have, like, an honest question. Not, like, a trap question, but, like, like an honest question. Uh, but, you you know, I don't think you want to go through school with, like, a red X on your forehead the entire time. Because it's just going to, like, make things difficult for you. Uh, and just make maybe put some barricades into your profession. Yeah. Uh, like early
0: profession, like a career. But yeah, I think on it's not. It
2: yeah. It's a... Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, it's just not an issue that I like faced firsthand. But I've just kind of like lived through with like current students and past students.
1: It's definitely. Well, I balance. don't think my way is a uh, is the right way by any means. I don't recommend it to many people. But yeah, you know, I've learned as a result.
0: Yeah, I think you've got to decide what works for you. Um, and, and like, how much do you want to care in this regard and argue? And do you think you can actually make an impact on this person? And school is a lot about just jumping through hoops. Um, and that, that's just my personal like, impression of it. Um, and so it's like, do I really want to, you know, waste hours agonizing over, I feel like my professor said something incorrect, And they don't seem open or interested in the slightest bit. Is this really worth my time when I could go study my nat and physiology that I'm going to be tested on later this week versus, you know, agonizing over this email with this professor? You've got to wait that on your own. I can tell you, you know, my approach was like, yeah, this isn't worth my time um, and just move on with life. But others, you know, we talked about bottom up change. Like on some level, we do need people questioning things and then asking, you know, Are there other explanations for this or different evidence we could consider? I just would try to strike a balance where you don't get completely destroyed by the amount of sheer volume of information you need to learn, and then also stressing about arguing with your professor who has your grade in their hands for right or wrong.
1: Yeah, I think that builds in next to kind of the the next set of questions, um, which I'll combine into how did you stay sane when your school pushed outdated models or straight up pseudoscience and how much of that is still being taught in school, do you think?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I think we kind of already answered number one a little bit. Like I just didn't, it's going to be funny if some of my classmates listen to this because they're like Mike totally went after some people and I'm sure there are like some offset occasions and which I was like, yeah, that's really stupid. I can't be quiet any longer. Um, but I think mostly it was, I'm just not going to engage this and awesome. I'll say what you want me to say on the test and move on. And to be fair, like, cause people who go to chiropractic school are probably listening to this and being like, that was a miserable experience for him. The majority of stuff that we got tested on is very similar, if not exactly the same as PTs as well. It's a lot of, it was biochemistry and anatomy and physiology, gross dissection Um, going through ortho neuro classes, going through therapeutic exercise, although that was, could have been much better past modality classes. Like our curriculums are extremely similar, but then we have that one-off class that's like chiropractic subluxations and philosophy that just like, unfortunately, you know, paints the entire education in a particular light. It's almost like, what was the Kahneman study where they did colonoscopies and, um, it, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of what it's like. It's like the whole education itself is actually pretty good. Like I passed boards without an issue, got licensed and been fine. And I think like the things I needed to be a clinician, like, yeah, that's bad. I probably should send this for an MRI or yeah, that's not good. I probably should send this for for referral. They did great with like, I, I don't think that they missed the mark on that at all. It was just these kind of one off classes that made a different impression on me long term.
1: Well, I think some of it you you almost have to learn in order to unlearn it, and uh, I still, can, you know, tell you the the different categories of slap lesions and you know yeah. different stages of all kinds of biomechanical processes, and then you you start seeing that y- yes, it does matter, but as far as like slice of the pie, it's such a narrow slice that like it you can discount it. Okay? Yeah. But I, I, but let's say for the sake of argument that we had the most evidence-based practice education in the history of ever, like it's still going to change over the course of the next decade. And it's still on you to stay up to date with it. I mean, when, when I was in school was when all the research on treatment based classification for low back pain was coming out. That's what I was taught. So by all means, at the time, like I I was in the studies that were being published at that time, we've moved a long way since then. So it still is on you as a clinician, as a student to kind of stay up to date as the changes go.
2: Yeah, I, I specifically remember learning TBC and specifically being told by my professor, like, I will be teaching whatever is up to date in 10 years. So if you're still doing just this in 10 years, like, you've missed the boat. Like, you know, like, we're getting you started, but, like, stay up to date.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, – I don't think anyone um, – I'm certainly not going into assistant professor position – wanting to be behind the times. But some of it is like, hey, this is our curriculum. You need to know these things as going on for pre-healthcare, you know, uh, doctorates and stuff. And so it may not be the most exciting stuff. It's laying a foundation. Then, like Derek's saying, you got to figure out, like, well, what is tangible and usable in clinical practice? And, um, yeah. yeah. I don't want to come off as, like, um, ungrateful to my education or anything like that because I think there's a lot of people – that try very hard to do their you know, best with the educational system that they find themselves in.
1: So that's a good bridge to the next one. Looking back, what area do you wish you were better educated at? Yeah. Um,
0: it would, it would require like an overhaul on the approach to clinical practice. So like everything we were taught from an interventional standpoint was like pain, do this. Someone presents with shoulder pain, do these exercises, do this passive modality, do this you know, joint manipulation, do send out for these x-rays type thing. So we're very much taught from like you're an interventionalist type standpoint and your primary job is to control pain for people and then improve function, however we're defining that. I would much rather have seen like how we can shift that approach towards here's a better understanding of pain and here's a better understanding of your role, not as an interventionalist, but as a healthcare professional trying to help another human. It's probably the best way I could put it.
2: There's so many things. <laughs> I'm Mike, like,
0: like I'm going to pour uh, a
2: drink. I'll be back. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's like, there, there's a time constraint, obviously. Right. And like, it's hard to remember exactly what you decided was meaningful at the time. And, um, I'll just speak to musculoskeletal care because I don't want to, uh, you know, say something stupid about something I don't know about. But I, I would love there to be, like, almost, like, a better, like, floor-to-ceiling where, you know, there are some, like, mechanism and physiology things that I feel like I learned now that seem like I should have learned then. And maybe I did. I forget. I don't know. Maybe they weren't placed importance. But, like, things like mechanotransduction and, like, How bone changes in response to exercise and, you know, like why sarcopenia, you know, is something we should care about as physical therapists. Like, I I think there are some things that I feel like are big that just kind of get missed and we could have a huge influence on where we get caught up maybe in things that we don't have a huge influence on. And and that might just be like a profession identity thing. So, like, there's there's that end of the spectrum of, like, what can we actually change? What are we good at? And then can we, like, learn the shit out of that? And then the other end of the spectrum would be more, like, practical, like, instead of leaving it all up to clinical rotations and teaching you you how to be practical and teaching you how to, you know, prescribe treatment, intervene, like, is there a way to do that in school, you know, like, something that's more process-oriented? Because I feel like that's always, like, the deer in headlights scenario with students is, like, all right, I know all these diagnoses. I know all these tests. I know kind of how like to initiate treatment, but then like, how do I get past like day one? You know, how do I like guide the process and what should I be looking for in terms of like progression? Like, what are good goals to set? Like things that we kind of uh, think are simple to us now, but I think like are always yeah. learned in clinical. And is that is it always going to be like that? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't
0: have a good answer for that. I feel like it's so, at least like my impression is it's so focused on boards. Like, you know, we had um you guys have just one board at the end, right? Yes. We had five total if you do the physiotherapy board. So like year one at Kaira School is just like we need to teach you everything about basic sciences to make sure you part because part one was all basic sciences. And so like just overwhelmed with that idea of that's that's part one and then part two and three were more Gear towards what you're saying Amato, as far as like clinical practice but it was just vignette style of like okay a person presents with low back pain what are the orthopedic tests you should do what are the neuro tests you should do when should you order x-ray because that's parts two and three boards like the in their defense it's so much like you need to pass boards because if you don't pass boards and you get to the end of this three and a half years what the hell are you going to do you don't have the ability to be a licensed clinician so I don't know if like maybe some of these things we want to see change would actually involve changing how boards is disseminated, which may then change how these programs are being conducted. I don't know.
1: I would certainly agree with Amato that we spend way too much time teaching the diagnosis and not enough of the prognosis. And I wish we would have had a lot more of those conversations I think uh, physical therapy, and this is one time where I'm really comfortable making a delineation. I think PTs are so averse to being compared to personal trainers that as a result, we do a horrendous job teaching therapeutic exercise or even exercise because it's just everyone seems to want to uh, avoid that conversation. But then as a result, PT students come out and PTs come out with no grasp of exercise prescription or, or how to dose appropriately, or even probably more damning is how to have the conversation about what a certain movement or exercise means beyond it just being, you know, pick whatever centrating narrative we want to choose, as far as fancy polysyllabic word to explain that, hey, like we got you moving and, and things are calming down.
0: I feel like some of that is. It's just this idea of um, for-profit healthcare, and again, we could do a whole podcast on this. Like, we have fifteen professions trying to do the same thing under a different title and claiming how important they are and why they're necessary, and it leads to all of these issues that I think that we're discussing. It's like trying to demonstrate necessity versus like, hey, there's only like five things we can really do to help improve long-term health. You know, how about we get really good at that and we have one title and we all try to, like, work together, right? Uh, I don't know how we get, like, because you're talking about personal training versus physical therapy and then OT earlier and then Cairo. Like, I think me personally, all of these little arguments of titles spin off of everybody wants a piece of the pie and wants to demonstrate how important they are and why they should be seen for X, Y, or Z issues.
2: Yeah, Yeah, and that was the impression I got, not to go off on a tangent, but, like, you know, some of the quarrels between athletic training and physical therapy you know it was like they're trying to step on our turf yeah they're starting you know vice versa and you know and it 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 kind of has legal ramifications you know like actual legislation battles so
0: oh yeah which comes down to like dollars right can i throw can you actually money at this to yeah so like The argument is earlier on OT versus PT, you know, like a lot of people don't know this, but chiros and PTs build pretty much the same exact codes, like especially therapeutic exercise 97110 in the States. Um, And so it's just like, yeah, we should really do a podcast on that whole topic in and of itself. And it's honestly probably why I've gravitated more and more to academia over the years. It's just like I got so tired of this like you should come see me i'm so important and i'm better than this person or that person which are ultimately the arguments that occur when we start throwing titles around at each other um it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me because i'm like you know ultimately we're just trying to help the human in front of us and hopefully we're doing that in the most evidence-based way possible not a great business model but
1: well but i think i i would probably counter that last point and say it it is a, a very sustainable model if you're not having to fight the other group yeah. and because really it is if you look in general most people are much more willing to invest in their top end performance versus their like bottom end health and it's why we have so much trouble you know talking people into even getting different types of insurance not just healthcare insurance but you know auto homeowners whatever we want to say because we all operate under the assumption that it's, it's never going to happen to us and that assumption is predicated on us taking the steps that we need to take in order to be healthy and i think that's been one of the big real paradigm shifts even in my own clinical practice has been away from this like specifics into you know you just need to start by doing something and when you really look at that i think in general it's kind of an easier message to sell um because in instead of making this super high bar that you know you need uh only back squat or kettlebell training is the way to go or like you need stabilization or, or pick whatever it is like dude if if you are out larping for 45 minutes and meeting physical activity guidelines as a result Don your wizard robes, grab your sword. Let's go, buddy.
0: But make sure you low bar back more squat while you're doing that.
1: Yeah. Well, that's only if you have an ogre chasing you with plus fifty hit points or something like that. Exactly, you need the right leverage. Um,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it makes like simple sense in my mind where like we could be uniquely positioned to like help people who have decrease in function because of a musculoskeletal disorder and then we just get them back to what they want to do and maybe increase their physical activity
1: it seems simple but <laughs> so simple it's complex yeah
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's tough man um i talked to jim eubanks about this a lot who's a, a pmr physical medicine rehab at university of pittsburgh's medical center About like we just need system level changes ultimately. Like if we really want to see changes, you affect system level changes, which is in our system going to be reimbursements and profitability and codes that are allowed to be built out, um, which eventually gets into like scope of practice restrictions and so on and so forth. But I I ultimately think like it's going to have to come down to um, where we're consolidating some of these professions. At least, and again, this is my personal opinion. Uh, that we're going to have to consolidate some of these professions that are all trying to do the same thing, but in their own flavor, which I do think contributes to all of these different narratives. And it makes me kind of sit back and reflect and be like, are we actually doing what we've set out to do as these different professions? Are we actually helping people long-term, or are we just getting in each other's way and causing a lot of misinformation?
1: Well, I mean, we've almost created this, like, telephone game system of hierarchy to where there's no way the message message can start from the top of the hill and make it to the patient without going through at least two or three iterations.
0: Yeah. And trademarks.
1: But really, you know, I I think it still circles back to that whole, like, need for the the student to be curious, to reach out and make different connections and, and really build those networks out of things and I I really think having that kind of 10,000 foot view of seeing that a lot of these issues are people issues, not rehab issues or, or not anything like that and then seeking to make connections toward you know we can we can change people is as esoteric as that phrase could possibly be but really that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean,
2: those are my selfish reasons for wanting to be a clinet uh, director. I'm, I'm just constantly challenged by the new, the next student, you know, because they'll if they think something's important, I'm gonna try to see why, and that might nudge me in a direction that I didn't foresee, you know, just because like we all kind of like listen to each other, right? We all say the same things eventually, so yeah, it's always about having like expanding your bubbles, hearing new people. And I think students are a great, you know, new voice usually because, you know, they might say something that rubs you the wrong way, but then you think about it and you're like, I could kind of see that. And then, like, you know, you're just working through different viewpoints and different presentations of evidence. So it's cool to see that. And I think if more people were open to that both directions, then it would probably be better off. Yeah.
0: But I need to be very overly confident and act like I know exactly what's going on and what you need to do, and I can provide it and profit from it, right? You know, I've been like teaching, I've been fully stumped by students, like mid tangent about something, and they're like, Have you thought about this? And I'm like, Holy shit, I have not thought about that. That's an amazing question (laughs) that I now need to go think about.
1: It's, I have relationships with a few students and young clinicians that I get excited when I see a text message from them because I, I know I'm about to, like, ha- have some homework on something I hadn't thought about in a new way. And, you yeah. know, over time, you start building those connections up and, like, all of a sudden, it's like every day something new showing up that I get to go learn about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. I just had uh, our student Chris did an in-service on plyometric training because, like, on my first week or this first week or so, I gave someone like fifty hops to do at home. And he's like, "Why do you pick 50? I was like, "I don't know." <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> "I was like, I don't know. I just think I learned that at some point Sounded as good. being like an entry, yeah, <laughs> it's an entry point." And he was like, "All right, I'm, I'm looking into that, you know." And then eight weeks later, he's like, "Yeah, there's nothing, nothing to say anything about anything about that." So. <laughs> Uh, here's some framework based on the research.
0: No, I love those questions though, because someone would be like, "Why did you do the you know rep range or something or this exercise?" And I'm like, oh, "I don't know. It made sense for this particular person, but it <laughs> does, it, there is like some credence to that, right? Because it just shows like there's not a lot of black and white in these scenarios. Like, you know, it just it just doesn't function that way. There is just uncertainty, or it's just like I really like seven, so we went with seven reps this time. You know." <laughs>
1: But I I think even to kind of bring this home, really, the educational experience is getting comfortable asking why, but even more so getting comfortable being asked why. Um, Because it's really easy to sit there and, you know, street epistemology somebody. But when it's happening to you, that's a completely different experience. And, you know, it's not comfortable. And, you know, we talk about how we handle these situations where we had disagreements with professors or how we chose our school. And it ultimately, like, I think distills down to surround yourself with people who are going to challenge you and get really comfortable being challenged.
0: Yeah. I think you have to have a willingness to be questioned. Uh, And I don't think we teach that very well. Uh, And it can be very unsettling. You know, I would say 10 years ago, me versus today, that's probably something that's changed. If someone's like, why i'm like it's a good question and maybe i haven't somewhat of an explanation or i'm like i have no idea like that's just you know to say the thing we don't usually say that's the way we've always done it right and then you're like oh i probably should go Mm -hmm. look into this
1: yep it's always something time to find another dead end
0: right i will not forget (laughs) the the knee wrapping narrative man that was probably one of the biggest disappointments in the past like five years um well,
1: but you think about it, like it was a wait, disappointment, what? but it also was like one of the biggest learning experiences of the last. And I think that was also like six years ago now, man. We've known It each probably each was.
0: All. Stop. Birthdays this weekend. What? Knee, it's unfortunate.
1: What knee, what, yeah. what knee wrapping thing?
2: What are we talking about? I
0: think this was like before. It probably was a while ago because I think it was before we started like talking and working together. Um, but we went down some rabbit hole about squatting and knee mechanics and kinematics. And there was, I think it was like the Harmon or Hartman paper. Um, that looked at like spinal column kinematics with knee kinematics at particular squat depths and it sounded amazing. Uh-huh. And it was talking about decreased forces on the knee past a particular like 90 degrees of flexion and then I was like, because oh, the knee wrapping. yeah, and I was like man, knee wrapping, that yeah. sounds awesome. And there was like two citations and I went and pulled it and I was like, mm-hmm. what the hell is this? It was like 1970 cadaver study. I emailed the lead author and was like, hey, you got anything else to support this? And they're like, no, that's it. That's what we got. And I was like, Shit. I remember like texting Derek being like, well, this didn't pan out.
1: <laughs> Never mind.
0: Yeah. Sounded uh, great. Though. Yeah, Me I,
1: yeah I, I think obviously there were some tangents in this podcast, which I, I think is more the norm <laughs> than the exception for us. But hopefully at least the students, and young clinicians, like have a little bit better understanding and some different ways of thinking about what's going on right now. You're never going to have a phenomenal experience going through school, or if so, it's exceedingly rare. Um, And there's always going to be instances where, you know, you have that, what should I be doing here? How should I handle this? And I think that is when it's really important to reach out and build that network of other individuals who you're comfortable bouncing ideas off of. I mean, just because it came from your professor, it doesn't mean it's right. And just because it came from your buddy who also reads research doesn't mean it's right. And there's always the option that, you know, both sides are wrong in a discussion. And I think if we had a little bit more willingness to accept that third option, we'd probably be moving forward a little bit faster.
0: Yeah, I think it's like most life situations, right? You just, you got to make the most of the situation, take from it what you can, good or bad, and then move on and try to do the best you can once you get into clinical practice and surround yourself with people that will also try to push you. Uh, I'm not naive to think like anything I've accomplished was because of me, it was because people around me also pushed me to be better. So I think that's a big, big part of it. And uh, try not to be too hard on your professors coming from a soon to be assistant professor.
2: Yeah, I think it's a common thread through most of our episodes on like professional development is just be in the room and then like participate in the
1: discussions in the room. Yeah. Just show up. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, that could also be a t shirt.
1: What are you going to do? Not show up? Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: I actually like that. Well, thank you
0: guys for having this discussion. Hopefully, you guys found this beneficial. Uh, I think the, you know, I'll speak for all of us real quick. I think all of us would say that we enjoy being in this industry and pain and rehab and and do feel like we're making an impact. So if you've heard this and you're like, man, these guys like hate everything about the rehab professions. uh, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, But it's easy to like talk negatively on particular experiences. Um, But next time we're probably going to do a discussion on the neck just to go with our next series. So be on the lookout for that. We also have a pain and rehab seminar coming up with Derek and I in uh florida the where are we at gainesville there we go gainesville yes which you know until people started talking about this on the internet i never equated Gaines right with the z to gainesville it just never like i don't know why it didn't add up for me
1: the the most famous barbell club in the area their shirt is or actually one of their shirts they do phenomenal apparel as well uh, is just the word gains in the Florida script on the front of the shirt. It's the most perfect design ever.
0: I mean, yeah, that's instant marketing. It makes sense. Yeah. What, uh, do you recall the dates? I actually don't recall the dates. for down there. I think it's October
1: 23rd and 24th.
0: There you we go. did it on so an off tickets. football weekend. Yes, that was like mandatory for this. Uh, so those tickets are available now on barbellmedicine.com. Just click on the seminars tab. As always, if you have any questions or need any help with pain and injury and returning to activity, we'd be happy to consult with you. Just go to our website at barbellmedicine.com and click on the coaching tab. Until next time, keep training.